Our scripture reading today is from Nehemiah 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers came from Judea with some men. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in Providence are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been buried with fire, burned with fire. Then I heard these things. When I heard these things, I sat down. For some days, I mourned and fasted, and I prayed before God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive to hear and your eyes be open to the prayer your servant is praying before you, day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions I gave you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands... Then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. They are your servants and your people, who you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. First ever 1045. Congratulations to you. Yeah, a couple things uh, before we get started. First of all, that great song you heard earlier called Unshakable was actually written by our very own Nathan Brown, if you didn't know. That's a, a great song and you can actually buy that, if you'd like, on iTunes. It's available on an album put out by a church we have a connection with called Mid-Cities Church and the album is uh, for Mid-Cities Worship. It's called uh, The Songs We Sing and Nathan's song is actually chosen as their single. How about that? So, Anyway, you can buy it on iTunes. Uh, What a great song. And second, again, to echo Barnabas, that marriage event. You don't want to miss it. So today we are kicking off, as you can see, a brand new series from the book of Nehemiah called Unshakable, looking at how the gospel enables us to live unshakable lives in shakable times. And that's a big statement right there. And if today you're, you're, you're here and you're not going through something that's shaking your life, well, that's a good thing. But I'm glad you're here. I hope we can prepare you for what may come along the way. But if this is you, then really you couldn't be here at a better time or better place because over the next few weeks, I hope to introduce you, if you're not familiar with him, to someone who did something extraordinary during his lifetime against every kind of odd, a man by the name of Nehemiah. He's one of the great leaders in the Bible and really in history. And so over the next few weeks along the way, my hope and heart for you is that you and your life, you'd begin to grow even in ways you didn't think possible. And that through the life, through the story, through the impact of this man and his book, you and we, we would become more courageous. We'd become braver. We'd become more honest and fearless in whatever we faced. And by the way, if there's something that our world needs more of right now, 
to people like that who are more courageous, who are braver, more honest, more fearless, who are unshakable. And as a quick aside before we get going, you may know if you know the story, there actually is a kind of a wall that's built, uh, but that's not what this kind of wall is at all. So don't read into that. Nehemiah. Don't want your mind to go there. Nehemiah, though, is far less, though, about any kind of wall, and it's actually far more, if you read it, about this single question, it's this, let's ask it, what does it take to become unshakable in life? What does it take to become that? Well, three things, as we're going to see from the first chapter today, it takes a broken heart, of all things, a broader prayer, something we'll call a better cup. We'll get to that, but let's begin here in number one. And right away off the bat, Nehemiah tells you that in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, again, this isn't happening in a galaxy far, far away a long time ago. It's in real history. He said, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah, some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile Where are we here? Well, if you've been with us for the past month or or so, you know that we've been in the book of Ruth, which took place around 1300 BC. But soon after Ruth's life, the nation of Israel developed a monarchy, the period of the kings. And though there were a few good kings, most of the kings were bad kings. And most of those bad kings turned the people's hearts away from God and from the covenant the people of Israel had made with God to be their people. And though God sent literally for centuries prophet after prophet to them, people like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they refused to listen. And so finally, God allowed the Assyrian Empire to conquer the northern part of the nation of Israel. And then in 586 BC, the hammer stroke fell, and the Babylonian Empire came in, tore the temple down, tore the city of Jerusalem down, and carried most of the people in Judah, the southern part, into exile. But then we look up, and as happens, there was an ancient game going on called Empire Roulette. And the Persians came in and conquered the Babylonians. And then we look up a few years later, and Cyrus is now the king of Persia, formerly Babylon. And he's inherited all these Jewish exiles in his land. And he looks up and he says, hey, you guys can begin to go back 70 years later. And so thousands of Jews, 70 years later, relocated back to their homeland to try to get the nation going again, to try to get temple worship going again, to try to kickstart the economy, but it was a disaster. They couldn't get anything going. And in the meantime, the rebuilding of the nation was stalled. So now, 20 years, as Nehemiah said, 20 years after the people began to go back, which is now 90 years after the temple and city were destroyed, we meet Nehemiah. What we know about Nehemiah is that he worked in the Persian government. He was a politician of sorts. He was like a cabinet member of a pagan king. But we don't know if Nehemiah had actually ever been to his homeland originally as the land of Israel before. And in fact, it's likely that he had it because his family had been forced to move to Babylon, leave their homeland. And so Nehemiah had been born to a family in captivity 
grew up in Babylon, the Persian Empire. And now, though, though his family and he are in captivity, Nehemiah, because he was so smart and so wise and so gifted, Nehemiah has climbed the corporate ladder. And he's at the top of his culture, and he's got really a pretty good life. He's got a life of relative comfort. He doesn't have to worry about where he's going to live, where his next meal is going to come from, what he's going to wear. Nehemiah has got it made but. But something's about to happen to him that's going to shake up and overturn his successful, cozy, and small life. Because one day, one of his family members, his brother, as a matter of fact, came to visit him in the palace, who had been actually back to Jerusalem, seen the devastation there, seen the stalled rebuilding of Jerusalem. And of course, Nehemiah asks him, like brothers do, making casual conversation, hey, how are the folks back home doing? Now, you may be thinking, that's kind of a weird place to start a book, like in the Bible, you know, a conversation between two brothers shooting the breeze in the hallway, you know, around the water cooler at work. What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that Nehemiah's story is about to pick up right here because right here is where his life was about to change because something was about to happen to him in this conversation that was so crucial, so critical that when he wrote this account of his life, he put this, oh, at the front. He doesn't begin with a, a long list of his ancestors. He doesn't begin with his list of credentials or his resume or even what he did back in spring break 2K14. He begins right here so you can't miss it. The moment that changed his life, that moved him from being someone you never, ever would have heard about. To someone who changed history, what happened to him? Oh, here's what it was. Nehemiah experienced a broken heart. That's what it was. Nehemiah experienced a broken heart. Look, here's what his brother said to him. He said, those who survived and are back home are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall is broken down. The gates have been burned with fire. And what happened to Nehemiah? He said, when I heard these things, I sat down. wept. Let me ask you today, what has broken your heart? What's broken your heart? What thing has happened to you in your life that you didn't see coming? You never could have predicted the thing that was the voted, you would have voted the least likely thing you ever would have wanted to happen to you that left you gasping for air or, or fighting for direction or just wishing you didn't have to feel anything ever again. What's broken your heart. Maybe it was bad news, a failed marriage, a failing marriage, something your parents or family or children have done or something a friend did or didn't do, a broken promise by those people or something those people did that you just can't shake and that leaves you fighting for forgiveness at night when no one's around. What's broken your heart? You say, well, Morgan, I came here today to hear about being unshakable. This sounds like pretty shaky stuff. What in the world does this have to do with my becoming unshakable? 
Well, here's what, because here's what I know. I know, you ought to know, that before God does something great through us, he does something great in us. I'll say it again. Before God does something great through us, he does something great in us. And many times that great thing is a broken heart. See, what took Nehemiah, can you see, from being just a good man, with a good job to being a great man who changed the nation's history was the work God did in him first through a broken heart. And Nehemiah puts it first in his story. So you'll consider putting it first in yours. See, his, his life of difference making, our life of difference making, it doesn't really begin in a great university somewhere. It really begins in another school. School of pain, or maybe the school of hard knocks, as it were. Now, think about your life today. Where have you had your heart broken in the past? Or what's breaking your heart right now? What I, what I want you to see is, though, you may not have seen it this way before or considered it this way in the past. Many times, the best work God does is through a broken heart. See, what we see as catastrophic, God sees as catalytic. See, what we experience as a dead end, God gives as new life. And here's why a broken heart is the counterintuitive foundation of an unshakable life. Because when you experience a broken heart, a broken heart is a kind of a death. It's a kind of a painful separation from something or someone. But listen, don't you know that in the gospel, because of the resurrection, death only makes things grow. To quote one great Christian poet, George Herbert, because of the resurrection power of Jesus, death used to be an executioner. But now death is only a gardener, a gardener that makes things grow because of the resurrection power of Jesus in the life of a Christ follower. Any kind of death you ever experience is only a doorway to something greater than you ever could have seen coming and more glorious than you couldn't have known. I mean, doesn't the book of Hebrews say that Jesus Christ came to free those who all their lives were kept in slavery by the fear of death? And how did he break that power? Oh, through his own death and resurrection. See, the fear of death, rejection, fear of failure, all those things, those things try to box you in. They try to define you. But if you belong today to your heavenly father, I've got good news for you. A broken heart can be the most freeing thing in the world. Because, hear me, if the worst thing has already happened to you, what can touch you now? What can touch you now? A broken heart is clarifying. It's freeing. And although it's nothing that you ever would have picked in the hands of God, the thing that feels broken can become now the seed to your success and the fuel for your future. And if your heart is broken today, I'm begging you not to despise that thing. I mean, doesn't the psalmist say, Psalm 51, a broken heart, oh God, you do not despise. And neither should you. I have determined, and I hope you will too, to treasure treasure even the things that have broken my heart because when I look at the people God uses like Nehemiah I can see many times the deepest preparation God does is through my deepest sense of breaking See, there was a greater cause that God needed Nehemiah for. He never would have stepped up had this not happened. There's a greater cause God's calling some of you into. 
that maybe he's just going to use that broken heart to catapult you there. First thing we need to have an unshakable life, like Nehemiah's, is a heart that's been broken. But, and this is key, what you've got to see next is what Nehemiah does with his broken heart, because what he does next is so important, it's so crucial, it's the the fulcrum, it's the gap between where you are and where you're going to be, this in-between place, it's so important, here's what he does with his broken heart. He allows it to push him into, number two, a broader prayer. He prays. Look at what he does next. He says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned, fasted, prayed before the God of heaven. Oh, and then he launches into this big, literally world-changing prayer. And if we want to pray in that same way, we ought to look at Nehemiah's big, broad blueprint. And I practice saying that several times, by the way, because that's a tough one to get out. Just try it five times real fast. You'll see. Okay. How does Nehemiah pray? Oh, four ways quickly. Number one, he prays firstly, firstly, after he gets the bad news, before he even goes anywhere, he prays first. And what you can't miss is that clear fact before he gets on the phone, before he, you know, he picks up the, the horn, before he calls the cavalry, before cavalry, excuse me, before he gets, you know, online and angry faces the situation back in Jerusalem. Nehemiah prays and he fasts for how long? Days, days. He hits his knees before he hits the streets, can you see? See, he leads faithfully, yes, but he prays firstly. Let me ask you, in your home today, in your company today, in your business, do you pray firstly? Uh, In the New Testament, in response to a a question from one of his disciples, Jesus uh, answered, the, the disciple asked, why, Jesus, couldn't we drive out that evil? Why couldn't we cast that demonic thing out of that place in person? Well, Jesus said, oh, hey, that kind of evil only comes out by what? prayer and fasting. See, some kinds of evil, Jesus is saying, will never come out through battles and soldiers or armies or protests or marches alone. I mean, how could they? Because it takes spiritual warfare to win a spiritual battle. Some of you in your life, you're facing a situation, but you're only like waving a gun full of blanks at the devil you're expecting him to back down and you're wondering why he doesn't maybe it's because you just you brought the knife of your intellect to a gunfight with a demonic man you need a greater power at work nehemiah prays firstly so should we but second he also prays practically quickly here i mean look at him he he both prays and then he hits the streets he prays and he marches as it were he doesn't just do one or the other right he doesn't just do the the over secular view of leadership and say hey praying doesn't matter if you say you're gonna pray it just means you really don't care nor does he do this over spiritualized version of some christian leadership thing which many times we think oh i'm gonna pray but i'm not gonna move until i get a warm gooey feeling down on the inside somewhere like cinnamon roll sugar you know coursing no we ignore the verses about faith without works, right? Now, Nehemiah does both. He prays and he marches, and so should we in the area God calls us. Third, 
Nehemiah also prays politically. Yeah, he prays politically, and, and here's why. Prayer is the ultimate political act, greater than a vote, because it acknowledges a higher throne, a higher ruler, a higher king. I mean, look at how Nehemiah ends his prayer. He says, give your servant success today by granting him favor. Where? In the presence of this man, a lower man. See, Nehemiah is about to go in the next chapter, go before King Artaxerxes, the dude with all the power. And Nehemiah is about to go and ask him if he can go back and move back to Israel and rebuild the land. He's asking for a, a fully funded job transfer, this big, you know, nice relocation package, package big severance deal of army uh, and money and letters and accompaniment and all that stuff. He's going to ask the king to divert resources from the Persian Empire to nowheresville, Israel, with no benefit to the mothership. I mean, this is crazy. But in the next chapter, he does it. We see him go boldly before an earthly throne, but it's only because he's already come boldly before a higher throne. See, Nehemiah had influence with the king of Persia because he had influence with the king of heaven. And by the way, if you and I, if we want to read build anything. That's what it takes. Not government funding alone, not money alone. Influence with the king of heaven. Doesn't the Proverbs say the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord? Oh, Nehemiah knew it. And he prayed politically. And by the way, by the way, if you can accomplish your great dream in your life without great prayer, your dream is too small. Your dream is just too small. God's you can call it spoke to me this week. He said, Morgan, if you can get what you want by your hands alone, you won't want what you get in the end. Oh, if you can get what you want by your hands alone, you won't want what you get in the end. It'll either be misformed or too small. I don't want that. I want great prayer because I've got a great dream. And fourth, and I'll major in this one, Nehemiah prays counter-culturally. The most challenging part of the whole prayer is right in the middle. And what he prays, you're going to see it goes against the grain of much of what we believe today about ourselves and the world. He prays this. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, <coughs> have committed against you. Uh-oh. This is paradigm shattering because look at what Nehemiah doesn't pray here he doesn't and this is the word he doesn't blame someone else for the state of his nation he doesn't pray oh God I confess the sins those people have done he doesn't say oh God I confess the sins those Israelites have done and he says we Israelites have sinned as in all of us. And this is what makes him such a great leader. He doesn't look to pass the buck and say, man, pin the blame on the Fox News. Pin the tail on CNN. That's where the blame goes. It's this party or that party. He says, no, we are all in this together. And in case your mind isn't blown or offended yet, look at where he goes next because he goes on to say, oh God, I personally have sinned against you. When was the last time you confessed 
your sin to God. Oh, we get really good at confessing other people's sin to God. Like, God, would you forgive my spouse? Would you forgive my boss? My boss has got sin. You know that. You know, my roommate's got many sins. God, forgive her. The dishes again, you know, Lord. Even your dog, right? Whatever. We confess the sins of other people. Happy to list all the ways other people sin. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. He says, God, forgive me. But then he prays this last thing, which is really challenging. He repents in the end for the sin of, he says, myself and my father's family. Pause and question. Why was Nehemiah in exile? Why was he in captivity? Had he done anything personally to bring himself in that situation. No, no. He was in exile because of the choices of his grandparents and his great-grandparents. So what's he going to do with that, huh? I mean, he could complain all day. He shouldn't have to repent for his own family's past. But until he does, listen, it just shows God and others, he hasn't gotten what put him there in the first place. He hasn't understood that. If he can't repent the sins of his family, it shows he might repeat the same sins himself. Oh, this is a pattern of great people of prayer throughout the Bible. Look at Job. Look at Daniel. They're praying, confessing sins of their family and nation. And there are many ways to apply this in our own lives, but let me just do two quickly. Uh, in our nation, for us to rebuild, listen, not just a city, but at the foundation, trust between people groups, it's just honest to admit our forefathers have sinned in our nation, just like the forefathers of any nation on planet earth in the history of the world have sinned. But in ours, we've got to acknowledge, acknowledge how particularly we've treated certain people groups including minority groups for hundreds of years. And even more recently, the voice of the unborn in our nation. See, that's number one. And second, you say, well, aren't churches part of the problem? Yes, they are too. Pastors are part of the problem because many pastors have made the gospel more about making money than serving people, helping the self instead of helping others. And this is helpful to acknowledge that. Many, many years ago in a galaxy far, far away, that happened in this church. We tell you in our membership class. And that's why we acknowledge it, so we can understand how we got here and we don't do the same thing again. And when we cannot repeat the mistakes of the past, isn't that a good thing? Oh, it's a good thing. See, and if you only want to improve your own life, you only talk to God about your stuff. But if you want to rebuild a nation like Nehemiah, you've got to think more corporately, more broadly as he prayed. You say, well, I didn't do the stuff those people did. Listen, I didn't do the stuff those people on TV did, right? Although some people do. Anytime I meet a friend or a, a neighbor or somebody in my kids' sports teams, oh, you're a pastor, huh? All right. I, I see the look, right? Just sorry. Sorry for those folks. Listen, we've all inherited a world, created by choices of people upstream. But the question is, where do we go from here? What do we do with this? Nehemiah doesn't blame. That's not what this is. But he doesn't deny either. And this is the kind of heart God uses to rebuild a nation. You say, all right. It's tricky, but I want a heart. I can pray broadly. I want God to do something with my broken heart, broken life today. Turn them into something that shapes the world. 
Like Nehemiah's life and prayer and heart? What do I need? Oh, in the end, you need this. It's the truest, surest foundation of an unshakable life. Number three, you need a better cup, a better cup. And Nehemiah ends the chapter and his prayer with a little bit of a mic drop. And maybe you, you, you caught it earlier. He gets done praying and then boom, you know, one six word sentence, curtains down, chapter's done. Now he says, I, this was cup bearer to the king, fade to black. What's this? Well, the cupbearer was an interesting person in ancient times. The cupbearer was the one who tasted the king's food, sipped the king's drink before the king did. Why? Of course, to prevent assassination by poisoning. Because if the cupbearer ate and drank and lived, the king would too, right? But if the cupbearer ate and drank and died then the king would live too (laughs) because the plot would be foiled, the cupbearer would be dead, and the court would know, right? The the cupbearer was a kind of insurance policy for the king. So the cupbearer had access to the king, but if you know your history, this king, Artaxerxes, was not a man to trifle with or to make odd requests of because Artaxerxes had come to power after the assassination of his own father, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes had coldly and brutally defeated an assassination attempt early on in his reign and a massively orchestrated coup later on in his reign. And he was known to not only exact, to exact eye for an eye vengeance, but he ratcheted up the revenge factor and put to death even the children, the babies of those suspected to be disloyal. So for Nehemiah to go and now make this odd request, something that appeared to be kind of disloyal that would take him from being in the king's court to another land that was known for its resistance to foreign power. Oh, that's risking everything. I mean, for Nehemiah to go in in front of a king known for putting to death anybody who appeared to betray him and asked for public funding to be given to this other land and build it through Persian power? What would you think if you were the king? I think you would think, I'm going to end this little insurrection now. I'm going to put it down now because, you know, Nehemiah, you've been great and helpful, but you are a Jewish exile and you can take the Israelite out of Israel, but apparently you can't take Israel out of the Israelite. So Nehemiah knows he's going to risk not just his reputation, but his life, but he does it. He goes before a king who could kill him and he asks for the world, how could he do this? Oh, here's how. Because I believe it's possible and even likely. He is remembering a single question God asked another leader with a broken heart, a man by the name of Moses, whose name was on Nehemiah's lips all throughout his prayer, showing it's right there in front of him. And in the book of Exodus, God called Moses with his own broken heart for his people to do an impossible task. One night, Moses is out in the desert. If you know the story, God comes to him and asks him a question. God says, Moses, I'm going to use your broken heart to free my people. Moses says, no, God, the Pharaoh, the ruler is going to kill me if I go before him with this question and this request. But God asked him the question. I believe he's asking you today. God asked Moses, Moses, what's in your hand? What's in your hand? Well, what did Moses have in his hand? After all, it was what? Just a staff. 
just a shepherd's staff. It was a nothing staff, a nobody staff. That's all Moses had because that's all Moses was, a nothing and a nobody. This seems like an insulting question. This is like God asking you, you know, how much money do you have in your account when you know you're broke? (laughs) Oh, thanks, God, for the reminder, right? No, no, no. This was only a setup, a divine setup, because God doesn't see us how we see ourselves. Under God's anointing, at God's direction, that same nobody and nothing staff became an unstoppable weapon against evil in the world at God's power, because later, when Moses was facing a wall of water, an ocean of water in front of him, the army of the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, at his back, what did God say to him, oh, lift up what you've got in your hand. And Moses did it. And under God's anointing, a sea was parted and a nation was born. Moses, lift up what you have in your hand. Moses, I need you to see like I see in your hand. It's nothing in my economy. It's a tool of divine power. And now, 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 I believe Nehemiah is hearing that same question echo through his own broken heart. Oh, what do you have in your hand, Nehemiah? And he's thinking, I've just got a cup. I'm just a cup. I just got a cup. I'm just an ordinary cup bearer. I've got an ordinary cup in my hand. Oh, but in God's economy, a staff is never a staff, and a cup is never just a cup. And I think, I believe for the first time, as he comes out of prayer with Moses in his mind, now Nehemiah is getting it. It's all flashing back. He's saying, oh, I've got this position, this experience, this life formation like Moses had for such a time as this. All I've got's a cup, but all Moses had was a staff, and if he brought down an empire, with a staff, I can rebuild a nation with a cup because in God's hands, a staff is never a staff and a cup is never just a cup. And I'll ask you today, what do you have in your hand? Do you see yourself as only a cup bearer? Only a little person with a little job, or do you see yourself as a cupbearer? Someone put by God, divinely shaped, with intentional gifts, intentional focus and experiences, with a burden maybe nobody else has to free a people or to build a company that serves people. I mean, what do you have in your hand? It's not just a cup, it's not just a job, not just a family, not just a baby stroller with a double carriage, you know. It's something God has given you for now, for today. See, Nehemiah got it, and he rebuilt a nation. You say, man, I I, I like that. How can I be sure of that? How can I know this for myself like this? Because centuries later, another cup bearer came, and he was asked to drink of another kind of cup before another king, his heavenly father. Only this cup bearer knew There was poison in the cup, not wine. It was a kind of poison no one else had ever drunk before. It was the poison of the totality of human sin and suffering. And when he held that cup up, that cup bearer staggered. Because Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, he went into a garden. He began to pray for his people to be free with his own broken heart. But when he saw what it would cost him, when he saw his father, the king, was asking him to lift up that cup and drink it, Jesus prayed, oh, If it's possible, let that cup pass from me. Yet he said, oh, my father, not my will, 
but yours be done. And Jesus Christ went to the cross and he drank down that cup of poison all the way to the bottom and it entered his heart and it broke his body and it took his life. And yet now that same cup that brought him death brings us freedom because death couldn't hold him in the grave, couldn't keep him. And the cup he drank, which was the cross of Calvary, now gives us life today. See, a cup is never a cup. A staff is never a staff. A cross is never just a cross. What do you have in your hand, Jesus? The father asked. Oh, father, just the sin of the world, just the cup of suffering. Son, I want you to drink it. Yes, father, I'll do it. And he did it. And the cup that brought him death brings us life. And that's why you can know when you lift up your little cup today, your little thing, even the bad thing, even the thing that tastes like poison in your life, it's never just a bad thing. In the gospel, death used to be an executioner. Now he's only a gardener. You think that thing is only a staff, just a reminder of your broken life or the mistakes you've made. Just a cup, just a marriage, just raising kids day by day like Groundhog Day all over again. But in God's economy, it's what he uses to change the world. When you pick up that cup, that better cup, the miracle of the resurrection is because Jesus drank the poison. Now, you get poured into your life the wine of his new covenant. You got a new covenant job, a new covenant family, made a new covenant church, and aren't you glad? And when you know this, when you have this, the bottom of you, whew, your life is unshakable. But this is only yours. You only get this when you put down your cup and you pick up his. It means you put down your old life. You repent of the ways, the things you've done like Nehemiah did. And you say, not my will, God. Yours be done. And that's what becoming a Christian is. It means to put down your old life, your old cup, and to pick up a better cup, a better story. And to follow Jesus your whole life is the same thing. It means you're constantly asking, God, would you show me what I have in my hand? Would you transform this cup? Oh, it feels like one thing I know in your kingdom and your economy. It's never just a cup. How can we apply this today? Three ways. Number one, Look, look, look at your broken heart. Ask God, what are you doing in there? Lord, would you, would you show me what's inside that tomb? Because out of tombs come the greatest victory. Number two, begin to pray firstly in your life. Let me encourage you, those of you who are married, especially grab your spouse's hand or arm and just push right through the awkwardness, even if it's just a five-word prayer. Oh, God, please help them. <laughs> Lord, would you help her? Jesus, have mercy on him. You know he needs it. Listen, do that. Watch what happens two weeks, four weeks, six months. Watch what happens. And third, begin to see whatever you have in your hand differently. Not just a staff, not just a cup. Ooh, it's a new covenant tool of divine working power at God's hand by his grace.